Shelley, our first guest for tonight. Shelley Davido was born in South Africa, but has spent the last couple of decades living and working in many different parts of the world. Uh, she says of herself, I wasn't exactly uh, aspiring to be a globetrotter. In fact, I coveted stability. She spent a year in England, 10 years in the USA, two in Qatar, and at least seven here in Australia. She presently lives here on the Sunshine Coast. Shelley is the author of 40 books, including children's and young adults, fiction, non-fiction, and the 2015 memoir, Whisperings in the Blood. She's here tonight to talk about Shadow Sisters, uh, her memoir about growing up in South Africa during the apartheid regime. Shelley has been an introducing author once before uh, to Outspoken, but the subject of this book was just too interesting not to have her come back and talk about it. Please welcome Shelley to Millennium. <laughs> Shelley, the, the starting point to this memoir is the, um, is the contention that from the get-go, uh, in apartheid South Africa, your family was a crime. Is that right? Yes. We were a crime because legislation, according to apartheid, decreed that black people and white people could not live together as a family under one roof. So we had all kinds of legislation, like the Group Areas Act, which kept people apart, the Mixed Marriages Act, which meant that you couldn't marry someone of a different skin colour, Influx control, which kept black people out of the city of Johannesburg and Cape Town and all the different South African cities, and, um, and the Immorality Act, which meant that you could go to jail for having sex with anybody of a different skin colour. So we had all those, um, all those laws, and um, I was a young child, and um, if you can imagine this, these are the kinds of people my parents were. Um, you know, some poor black woman comes to the door in the middle of the night and um, my parents welcome her in and she doesn't have anywhere to stay and we are quite poor at that stage so we're an anomaly anyway because you know white South Africans during apartheid were generally very well off but we weren't and, um, and so she's invited in and because there's no extra room she gets the bunk, the bottom bunk in my room, in my bedroom and, um, and then she lives with us and becomes our grandmother, our gogo. And then a few years later, she brings a child um, into the house and she says, this is my granddaughter, she has no mother. Um, can she also live with you? And my parents say, sure, she can also live with you. And then a little while after that, um, the little girl has a friend who doesn't have anyone to look after her. Can she also come and stay with you? Sure, she can also come and stay with you. So, um, my parents' policy on, on um, refugees in their own country was, you know, it let everybody in. And, um, and so um, that black woman became like my grandmother, Gogo, and, um, and her granddaughter became my sister, so that when Gogo eventually retired, um, the little girl who lived with us stayed with us till she was 21. And this wasn't completely unique in South Africa. There were families made up of these kinds of constituents, but my parents were social activists, and so they were actively campaigning in their work to, um, to break the apartheid regime. And so my mother spent every day going to work in a township where um, she saw many terrible things, and um, she never stopped because she believed it was unequal. But what happened then was the political became intensely personal. So there was no division between a political um, like a law or something that happened because of politics and our own lives. So when people were shot in the townships, they were 
often people we knew, or when the police cruised by our house and checked out the black kids running around in the garden, you know, we were under suspicion. And um, yeah, so it was a very, it was a very heightened time. So why didn't they prosecute your family? Well, I think at that stage, and that's a really good question, they could have, and we, we definitely were harassed um, in all kinds of situations, but it was already completely out of control because you cannot keep human beings separate. You, they, people just integrated. People fell in love. People broke the law. Our family was one of them. Um, and my parents were never afraid. And, of course, things could have happened. There was a certain amount of fear because, for example, Gogo didn't have a pass for a while, which was a document that enabled you to come and go from a white area as a black person if you worked for someone, and she didn't have one. And so we were incredibly anxious for, for a year or two while she didn't have a pass. Um, but, yeah, we, we were never arrested and thrown in jail, although had it been a different kind of relationship and had we been more high-profile, who knows what would have happened. So was, I mean, was your family reasonably, uh, I mean, were there other families doing the same kind of thing that you were doing? Not that we knew of. I mean, in retrospect, I've heard of, you know, oh, we also had a similar situation, but I was the only child in my school with a black sister, and she was one of two black children who were allowed into our school when everyone started school. And so um, it was, it was you know, we stuck out and when we went out, say, to the shops or wherever we went together as a family, you know, we were this very pale family and, you know, my sister, called Rosie in the book, was coal black. And so, you know, she was harassed and we were harassed and we were harassed by both white racist people and also black people who would shout at my sister and say, you know, you're a coconut, you're black on the outside but you're white on the inside. Are you these white people's slave, you know, why can't you speak? Tosa or Zulu or Sepedi, why are you speaking, you know, white English? So it was, yeah, there was some, that w that's just the framework for the story, but yeah. It, I mean, it must have been very hard for Rosie, apart from, as, as the story reveals, the things that were going on that we didn't know about at the time, but it must have been very hard for her at the school itself, being one, the, one of the only two black children in a whole white school. Yeah, it was, it was traumatic for her, and um, she had a wonderful teacher who protected her from the sort of slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And this is where my guilt comes in, because Rosie's life was devastated by several things, and one of those things is something that I did. And, um, and so because this is, you know, a memoir, it's full disclosure, and this will be a bit of a plot spoiler, but I think it's necessary to share it. But I had an affair with her teacher while I was in year 12 and she was in year 2. And he had to leave the school. And it was an affair that blew the whole community apart. And of course, you know, I was the evil, you know, seductress at 18 or whatever. Um, and, um, and the guilt that I feel, though, is because she lost the person who protected her against, you know, what was a very racist society. And, um, and after that, her life just cas cascaded downhill. So I feel um, deeply responsible for that part of the story that um, can never be, you know, healed, really. Yeah, I mean, in some ways the book is a kind of act of atonement. Is that correct? I would say in some way maybe it is, because it took probably 20 years or more to have not just the courage, but the wisdom to know how to tell a story about someone whose voice 
I couldn't, I couldn't actually ask her for her permission to tell the story, and yet I felt like it needed to be told, and I needed to acknowledge, I needed to break the silence, because my family, for all their warmth and love and courage, you know, something happened which, um, which blew us all apart as well. Um, and I wanted to knit us together as best as I could, and so writing this, in a sense, it was probably the most difficult thing I've ever done. I mean, I just want to write fiction now, I just want to make things up. <laughs> um, because I had to ensure that everybody's story was kind of represented, and I had to try to tell my story, but incorporating other people's points of view. And of course, not everyone is always happy with how things get told. So if it was an act of atonement, um, I don't know that I have adequately atoned, um, but I know, that, I know that I've done something, I've said something that was important, I've broken the silence, and it might be, in the end, that this is closer to some kind of white fiction than it is to some kind of accurate record of what really happened, because so much of it is, you know, I'm drawing on memory, and we know memory is faulty. You know, two people don't remember the same event in the same way. Um, and, um, and I feel also that there are, there are issues that I, I feel guilty about. I asked my mother when I'd finished writing this book, um, you know, how do you feel? Because I had shown her the manuscript, and she had read all her words, and in fact, Everything that she wrote, you know, sh that she says in the book, she actually did say, and she checked that. And it's funny, because when I showed my stepdad the manuscript, he said, Carol would never say that, and I said, but she just did. <laughs> um, but, but when I asked her how, how the book was for her, she had two words. The first word was, she said, oh, it's masterful. And so I thought, oh, phew, thank goodness. And then she said, but it feels terrible. And I said, in what way? And she said, I feel like I've lost agency. And I was just devastated because, you know, you think that the act of recording and revealing is an act of exposure, and, and, um, and in a way, I felt like I'd erased her, like I'd erased her voice because it's my story, it's my perception of her, and she's a character in my book, so now I don't know how to atone for that. Um, <laughs> Uh, start writing fiction, maybe. But yeah, it's, in, it's an interesting thing, this revelation that then becomes an erasing of, of someone else's voice, potentially. Yeah. That's, that's quite, quite profound, really. Maybe you could read a little bit, just to give everybody a, a taste of what, it, what it's like. Sure. I'll read a little bit just from the beginning, and um, then I'll skip a few pages and um, read a bit further. Uh, chapter one is called A House by the River. The night Lena arrived, rain blanketed Johannesburg. The river, just a hundred meters from our house, roared in flood. I closed all my bedroom windows, even the two small ones. Thieves and murderers loved storms. A loud crash of thunder could mask breaking glass. Distant rumbles could hide the sound of a crowbar forcing open a security gate at the properties of those rich enough to have one. Besides, Open windows at night were simply an invitation for someone less fortunate than you to stick a long pole with a sharp end through the gap and hook things out of your room. Your blanket, your pillow, your new watch, a present for your 11th birthday from your dad. You had to think of these things. A short while later, my brother Larry and I sat at the dining table with our mother and stepfather, our two younger half-brothers already asleep. The knock at the door made us jump. Larry looked at me, I looked at our stepfather, who would be outside at this time of night in this weather. 
I moved closer to Larry. Our parents had separated just after I turned four. Larry was a baby. Perhaps that's when fear took hold. Or maybe it started the night the heater caught fire next to Larry's cot, and I woke to the smell of burning asbestos and ran screaming into my mother and stepfather's room. Or maybe fear just lived in the country's air, inscribed into the molecules we inhaled every single day. I slid to the floor behind the table. My stepfather stood against the front door. Who is it? Images of robbers with panga knives, of men with guns and cold hearts coming to kill us, tumbled through my mind. Though we had nothing, any stuff was worth taking to those who had less than nothing. It's me, Lena. Can you open the door? I came out from hiding. A gust of rain-sodden wind blew through the house, and she stood in the entrance hall wearing a black plastic bag with holes cut into it for a raincoat. Puddles of water collected around her on the parquet flooring. Thank you. Lena wiped her face with a puffy hand. Her eyes shimmered as she glanced from me to my mother. Shelley, go get a towel, please. My mother said. Lee, you must be freezing. Come and sit down. What's going on? Are you okay? No, madam. Lee, please use our first names. What's happened? So that's the introduction of、um, Lena, and I'm going to just read to you now what happens after she becomes part of the family. Um, Lena struggled for some time to figure out what to call my mother. Requested not to use the word "madam," she did not know what to do. But one day she said to my mother, "I know what your name is. What is it, Lena? Nomsa, kindness. I will call you Nomsa. My name was Tandiwe, meaning beloved, and Larry, my brother, became Temba, meaning lion-hearted courage. Matthew, she called Jabulani or Zulu for joy." And my youngest brother Sipo for gift. I loved our Gogolina. She gave us Zulu to use around the house, interspersed with smatterings of English. Sunny Bonani, Kunjani, hello, how are you? Vula the door, Tandiwe. Open the door, Tandiwe. Are you ready for Esikolweni? I thanked her for everything: the ironing, the washing, the bread she baked. I thanked her with the big thank you. Ngiabonga gakulu gogo. Ufunani umfano mngani. She would ask the little ones. What do you want, little boy? Ufunani Tandiwe. What do you want, Tandiwe? Come on, everybody. Giesa Benza. I'm working. And most importantly, Aikona Angifuni. No, I don't want that. Or no way. Sometimes, when she did the ironing, and her mind wandered, her face looked unrecognizable, and a deep frown ran down the center of her forehead. Her lips opened and closed with barely spoken words in her native Sepedi. Sweat dripped from her cheeks onto the clean laundry, and she ironed it into our sheets. I did not know what had lacerated her soul, or the size of the wounds she carried, or how we were in them. Thank you. Your your parents live in Australia now, as well as yourself and your sister. And my brother, my、um, youngest brother. Yeah. But so, how do you feel about South Africa now? I, I mean, I want to kind of presage that question a little bit because it seems to me that I, I'm an expatriate as well. I was born and raised in Scotland, and it's almost like there is a kind of molecular or an atomic 
um, memory that when you go back to a place, something in you, this is what I'm made of, kind of resonates with those places. And yet clearly you have very mixed feelings about, about where you grew up. Yeah, that's a great question, Stephen, because I was just talking to Kerry about that. I, I love South Africa with a passion that, you know, defies all logic because, you know, I go back there, I went back in 2014, and just the smells, the briny smell in Cape Town and the way the earth feels and smells, it just smells like wild elephant dung and, you know, and wind and charcoal and sea, and there's just something about that, and I just feel like my blood feels right here. But then, you know, after a few days and, you know, a few terrible experiences and a bit of crime here and there, I just want to leave again. I can't wait to get out of there. So it's just like an abusive relationship. You know, you're like, oh, I'm just coming right back into the arms of this thing that's going to just hurt me. And so I think after 2014, I thought, oh, I'm just never going back again. And now somebody's suggesting, oh, there's a conference. Do you want to go? And I'm thinking, maybe I should go. <laughs> So um, it's very conflicted, and um, I think I just have to live with that problem. It's just, it's never going to be the place that I love without the thorns and the hurtful things that, that exist there. But do you have hope for South Africa as a country that is going to uh, go past the present problems that it has? I think... I have hope at a human level. I think there are so many millions of amazing people doing incredible things, like, you know, Day Zero was coming up for, um, for water in Cape Town, and the way people just made sacrifices everywhere was just phenomenal. You know, there were these farmers who had a dam, you know, an elevated dam, and they had all this water, and that would have been fine for them, so Cape Town could have run out of water, and they would have been good, and they released all the water down into the community. So. I mean, I think at a human level, there's always hope because people are incredible. And at a political level, I have almost zero hope because I just see, um, you know, the, the same evils that were present in colonialism are just, you know, dressed in a different um, garb now and they continue. So I don't, I don't, unfortunately, have a lot of hope in my lifetime to see, like, sweeping political change. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, look, look, that's all we've got time for, Shelley. Th thank you so much. This is a fabulous book. It's a, it's a wonderful coming-of-age story as well as a kind of story of, of South Africa and growing up there. So thank you very thank much, you. Shelley. Thank you so much. Thank you.